Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the first Sunday of Lent. I'm beginning a new series during Lent, six weeks, and that is Calm Before the Storm. Six life lessons from the upper room. Why did I choose this title, Calm Before the Storm? Because for many months around Jesus' ministry, right before his going to the cross, storm clouds were gathering. And you could feel the tension in the air. There were the storm clouds of the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the scribes, you know, the religious elite in Israel. They were not happy with Jesus' ministry. In fact, the Bible tells us that the main, the main reason why they weren't pleased with Jesus was because of jealousy. Jesus was a rock star. And you had all these religious leaders going, man, look at how the crowds follow him. And they were just jealous of him. And they had decided some months previous to the upper room that they were going to kill Jesus. And they were just looking for a way in to Jesus' inner circle. And they found it through Judas, 30 pieces of silver. Then there was the storm clouds of Passover. Jewish people still celebrate Passover today. And when Passover occurred, hundreds of thousands of people came into Jerusalem, pilgrims, we call them, to worship in the temple, to make sacrifices to the Lord. And with those hundreds of thousands of people, there was always rabble-rousers, revolutionaries, because Israel was under occupation of the Romans, and so they were always looking for some insurrection. So the Romans just had these, you know, big binoculars out. Binoculars weren't created, but you know what I'm talking about. They were just looking for insurrection all over the place. So Jerusalem was on high alert. And then, of course, there was the X factor, and that is the clouds of the crowds. Did I say that right? Clouds of the crowds. I've been working on that all week. You remember the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem? Tens of thousands of people lined the pathway from the Mount of Olives toward the temple. And these people were shouting messianic terms. Blessed are he who comes in the name of the Lord. That doesn't sound too revolutionary to you and I, but in that context, what, they, what the crowds were really saying is, this is our guy. He's the Messiah. And if you were a Roman, and if you were a Jewish religious leader, you never wanted anybody to say those words when you're around because you knew there was going to be trouble. So you understand, you see all these storm clouds that are gathering around Jesus and the disciples. But for a moment, there's a pause. There's a calm before the storm. We see Jesus with his disciples in the upper room. I'm not saying that there wasn't tension because everybody knew what was going on, but they were having a quiet meal together. And in this quiet meal together, Jesus begins to teach them some life lessons that they're going to have to learn in order to make it through a storm. So here's my question to you this morning. Are you in a storm? Do you see the storm clouds gathering and you know that you're going to head into a storm? 
or did you just come out of a storm and you're kind of like shell-shocked? Whew, what was that about? How do I process this? How do I handle it? The first life lesson that Jesus gives us is when you're in a storm, do the opposite of what feels normal. Whatever you feel is the right thing to do, oftentimes when you're in a storm, it's not the right thing at all. Actually, theologians have a term for this, and it's called the great reversal. It's when God does the opposite of what you think, logically, God should do. And from Genesis to Revelation, you can track the great reversal. So, for example, when God decides he's going to create a great nation, he picks a no-name named Abram from the land of Ur, wherever that is. And in Genesis 12, he says, I will make you into a great nation and your name will become famous and the nations of the earth will be blessed by you and those who curse you will be cursed and those who bless you will be blessed. So I went online yesterday just to double check my figures and here's what I found out. There are 8 billion people on the planet and listen to this. 4.2 billion of the 8 billion can genetically or spiritually trace themselves back to Abraham. One out of every two people on the planet today. If you're Jewish, if you're Muslim, if you're a Christian, all look to Abraham and say, he's our daddy. But that's just one example out of many because in the Old Testament, the prophets continually say that God takes special favor to the poor, the marginalized, the alien, the immigrant. God seems to take great delight in raising up people that in culture says, you're nobody. And God says, you're not a nobody to me. Even the birth of Jesus is the great reversal. We would think that the king of kings being born would be born in a mansion. Instead, he's born in a manger. Even the death and resurrection of Jesus, the apostle Paul says, is the great reversal. Those who would find them, their lives would lose it. The apostle Paul says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are not being saved, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So, even Seinfeld knows. You know where I'm going with this? that when you're in a storm, you do the opposite of what you think is right. Why did it all turn out like this for me? I had so much promise. <laughs> I was personable. I was bright. Oh, maybe not academically speaking, but <laughs> I was perceptive. I always know when someone's uncomfortable at a party. <laughs> that happen over there? It all became very clear to me sitting out there today that Every decision I've ever made in my entire life has been wrong. <laughs> my life is the complete opposite of everything I want it to be. Every instinct I have in every aspect of life, be it something to wear, something to eat, it's often wrong. <laughs> Everyone. Tuna on toast, coleslaw, cup of coffee. Yeah. No, 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 wait a minute. I always have tuna on toast. Nothing's ever worked out for me with tuna on toast. <laughs> I want the complete opposite of tuna on toast. Chicken salad on rye. 
untoasted with a side of potato salad and a cup of tea. <laughs> well, there's no telling what can happen from this. You know, chicken salad's not the opposite of tuna. Salmon's the opposite of tuna, because salmon swim against the current and the tuna swim with it. Good for the tuna. Uh, George, you know, that woman just looked at you. So what? What am I supposed to do? Go talk to her. Elaine, bald men with no jobs and no money who live with their parents don't approach strange women. Well, here's your chance to try the opposite. Instead of tuna salad and being intimidated by women, chicken salad and going right up to them. Yeah, I should do the opposite. I should. If every instinct you have is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. Yes, I will do the opposite. I used to sit here and do nothing and regret it for the rest of the day. So now I will do the opposite and I will do something. Excuse me, uh, I couldn't help but notice that you were looking in my direction. <laughs> oh, yes, I was. You just ordered the same exact lunch as me. <laughs> my name is George. I'm unemployed and I live with my parents. I'm Victoria, hi. <laughs> they teach you in seminary that the first rule is never give a sermon illustration that is so memorable that nobody else remembers the rest of the sermon. I may have just violated that rule. Would you stand, please? Turn in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 12. Sorry, John 13, verse 12. Jesus is in the upper room. He's washing the disciples' feet, which is totally abnormal because usually there's a servant that washes everybody's feet. What is unsaid in this scripture that begins in verse one of 13 is all the disciples went to the upper room and none of the disciples wanted to be the servant to wash everybody else's feet because they figured they were too good waiting for somebody else to wash their feet. And then Jesus goes ahead and washes their feet and just embarrasses the life out of them. That's the context. Verse 12. After washing their feet, Jesus put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord and you're right because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you by doing them. Bow your heads, please. Holy Spirit, these next few moments, would you have a word for us? A good word. A word that reminds us that 
when we're in a storm, the last thing we should do is trust our heart because your word says that the heart above all things is deceitful and we can talk ourselves into anything. What we really need is to be led by your spirit. So would you take this example of Jesus and would you wrap it around our hearts and deposit something deep within us today that we need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Okay, a couple thoughts about doing the opposite of what feels normal. Number one, insulate, don't isolate. I think sometimes we forget something very obvious, and that is this. Our relationship with Christ may be personal, but it's never private. Every gospel, every letter of Paul, every letter of Peter, the letter of James, everything in the New Testament except Philemon was written to a group of people, the church. You and I cannot do the Christian life alone. We are in Community. Now that's so obvious, we say it all the time, but stop and think about it. Jesus is here with his disciples 24 hours before he goes to the cross. I don't know, if I'm Jesus, I would have wanted some me time to prepare myself for the cross. I at least would have gone home to my mother and said to her, Mary, I know your life hasn't worked out the way you thought it would. I know that dad died early on. I know that your life has been extremely difficult and you've experienced a lot of heartache and I just want to give you a heads up because your heart is about to be broken. And yet, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus hangs out with his disciples. So, a couple of years ago, we replaced our garage door it was the original garage door from the house built in 1994. It was not insulated. It was kind of beat up looking. And we just decided we'd, you know, get a new garage door. The garage door we got was insulated. And in the wintertime, with our old uninsulated garage door, whenever it get really cold outside, I mean, it was just as cold in the garage as it was outside. And one of our bedrooms is above the garage, and that was um, Emily's room, our, our daughter, when she was living at home. And she'd always say, Dad, I can never get warm. I'm, I'm freezing all the time in the wintertime, right? Well, guess what? We get the new garage door. It's insulated. Now our garage is a little bit warmer. And the upstairs bedroom works out just fine. Because it's insulated. The church is your insulation. We are not meant to be alone. And Jesus modeled this so well. Jesus brought people around him that he needed at critical moments. On the other hand, you have the disciples. They did not insulate, they isolated. You know what happened, right? You're in the olive grove, you know, the Garden of Gethsemane. Here's what happens. As soon as Judas comes and betrays Jesus, boom, everybody goes. Everybody runs away. 
Oh, you've got Peter. Peter shows up outside the trial of Jesus, right? The high priest's house. And he's just warming himself by a fire, looking in, trying to hear what's going on. And in one of the gospels, it says that a little girl came up to Peter and said, hey, you're one of Jesus' disciples, right? And Peter says a cuss word and says, I do not know this man. This happened three times, right? The rooster crows. And then somehow Jesus is by a window and he looks at Peter. And Peter's like, and he runs away. Even at the cross. Who's there at the cross? Only John. With his mom, Mary, Jesus' mom. And it takes the resurrection for the disciples to come together. And even when they're together, they're scared to death. They're behind locked doors because if they came after Jesus, they're coming after us. So can I just remind you of something you already know, and that is your relationship with Christ is personal, but it's never private. You and I need community. So I thought that we'd receive communion together right in the middle of the message. I've never done that before. I just decided I'll do something a little bit different. But here's a twist. I'm going to ask you to stand. Everybody should have a communion cup. If you don't have a communion uh, uh, cup, just raise your hand. We have the ushers. They'll come around and give you one. But, But here's the twist. To cement this idea... Oh gosh, he's going to ask us to do something. All the introverts are going to run to the restroom at this moment. Okay, listen, if you want to, I'm not going to force you to do it. If you want to. I want you to take your cup and I want you to go to somebody that you really haven't talked to in a while and just say, can we swap? Or go to somebody you don't know, introduce yourself, and say, my name is Mark. I'm not sure if we've met before, but here's my cup, and can I have your cup? If you're afraid of germs, then just look right down and stick, your, <laughs> stick the communion elements in your pocket and look spiritual, <laughs> and nobody will come up to you. But these are sanitized, right? I mean, you know, you got to peel everything off to, to get them, okay? But here's one more thing. If you've had a relationship breakdown somewhere along the way, today's a good day to go to somebody and say, hey, we're going to probably have to talk later, but I just want you to know that even though we maybe had a breakdown, maybe there's tension between us, I love you. You're my brother in Christ. You're my sister in Christ. And can, can we just swap elements? That's your first step toward reconciliation. Now listen, every week of Lent, we're going to be serving communion on a Sunday morning. It won't always be in the service. I won't always be in the sermon. It'll be someplace else in the service. So I'm going to pray. Go. Heavenly Father, would you, through this simple task of swapping cups, and we're about to receive communion. 
would you remind us, though we may be lonely, we're never alone. Though we may be in a storm, you've created a buffer, an insulation to keep us warm in the storm. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we can't take 10 minutes to do this, right? So just go to somebody, swap the cup, come back, and then we'll receive it together. Okay, come back together. Come on, that was fun. Okay, open up your packet. You have the the piece of bread. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, broke it, gave it to his disciples and said to them, this is my body, which is broken for you. Let's receive the element of the bread together. This is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ broken for you and for me. Take the cup. Jesus took the cup and he blessed it and he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my blood shed for you and shed for me. Let's receive the blood of Jesus. Thank you. You may be seated. Insulate. Do not isolate. It's natural to isolate when we're in a storm. We pull inward. We use phrases like, well, I'm just licking my wounds. Do the unnatural thing and press into relationship rather than isolate. Number two, serve rather than sulk. When we're in a storm, it's normal to focus on ourselves and to maybe even ask questions like, why has this happened to me and my family? Where was God and why did God allow this to happen? I take comfort in why questions. Maybe you think that they're not appropriate, but Psalm 22 is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus said this on the cross. And many, many Bible scholars and theologians think that Jesus actually quoted the entire Psalm, Psalm 22, when he was on the cross. If you got why questions, that's okay. But listen, sometimes... We can get stuck in why. I don't know why. Sometimes we can get stuck in self-reflection. And what should have been a season of a week or a month or even a year of self-reflection of I'm just trying to process everything I've gone through and I'm going through in this storm. Sometimes 
It's just too much. And God has given us an antidote to too much self-reflection, too much why me, and the answer is serving each other. Our friends that are not connected with Emmanuel, yes, Holly and I have friends outside of the church, okay? But I hope you do too. But we, we have friends in our neighborhood and um, one of our friends was recently diagnosed with a very serious illness and has been in the hospital. And Holly and I have been able to, and we've been privileged to, to take meals over to the family and to just say, we want to bless you. And we know, that, we know what it's like to go through some hard times. And so, you know, we've had meals provided for us, which we're extremely grateful for. But we want to be able to bless you with some meals as well. And, and they, they've just been grateful. And I've been able to go up and visit this person in the hospital. And they were grateful that I saw them in the hospital. I mean, you know what it's like, right? You have friends, a certain level of friendship, but you have to go to another level when there's crisis. And I got to tell you, We've been giving and serving to this family in their crisis. And I'll tell you, it feels good. It just does. It feels good to get out of my own brain of what we're going through and to just say, I'm not going to make it about us. This week, this month, it's going to be about somebody else. It just feels good. So, sometimes... God does his best work in the storm. And when you come out of the storm, you realize that you have something to give that you didn't have before to help other people. And Emmanuel, we've had several people who, have, who are currently serving because they've been through their own storms. For example, every Sunday we have a ministry that meets at 9 o'clock, so during this hour, called Recovery for Life. Scott and Sherry Kalach lead that ministry because they came out of their own storm of alcoholism and addiction. And they just want to give back to other people. We have a divorce, a divorce care ministry at Emmanuel. We have a multiple sclerosis support group. We have a support group for, for parents with children who have special needs. We, um, we, we host the largest AA group in our community. And we love it. Right? So don't get caught up in your own storm to the place that you forget that the way out of the storm oftentimes is just serving. And what did Jesus do the calm before the storm? He was giving a life lesson to his disciples by washing their feet, saying to them, this is what I want you to do. Don't get so wrapped up in your head. The other part of that is, is that you can't be too proud to receive People serving you. Remember what Peter did, right? Oh, you're not going to wash my feet. Jesus said, hey, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. And then, of course, Peter, in typical reactionary mode, well, then wash all of me. I'm not giving you a bath, Peter. I'm just telling you. All right? You take your own sponge bath. Are you too proud to have other people serve you? Are Holly and I the only ones that we want to be on the giving end? Oh, but we feel very awkward when we're on the receiving end. Sometimes the best thing you can do to bless another person is to receive somebody else's service. 
three. What does it mean to do the opposite of what you think is normal? Lean hard into Jesus because he's enough. Verse 19 says, I tell you this beforehand so that when it happens, you will believe that I am the Messiah. When you're in a storm, the tendency is to get over controlling and try to control everything, right? We have terms for this, you know? They're the controlling master of their universe, right? I mean, they just try to control everything because we're trying to control the storm to mitigate the damage. You know what Jesus says? Don't try to control the storm, release it and lean hard into me. Yesterday, my phone went off and I received a weather alert from the National Weather Service that a snow squall warning was coming and to be careful driving because of a low visibility. You're shaking your heads. I'm pretty sure we all got that if we have a phone, right? Interestingly, in verse 19, Jesus gives a weather warning. I tell you this beforehand so that when it happens, you will believe that I am the Messiah. What is he talking about? He's talking about Judas. He's warning the disciples ahead of time that Jesus, he, he's gonna be betrayed. Why would Jesus do that? Here's the answer. Because Judas was about to drop a storm on Jesus and the disciples. And in this storm, the disciples were going to be challenged to forget everything that they'd ever, they, they were going to question every miracle that Jesus ever did. They were going to question every teaching that Jesus ever did. They were going to question everything about Jesus because, whoa, they didn't see this coming. And you know what Jesus is saying to them? Don't question in the dark what you've seen in the light. I'm giving you fair warning. You will you will Go through storms. You will. Some are brewing. Some are in it. Some have just come out of it. But everybody goes through storms. I don't know what your storm is. Job loss, illness, marriage problem. I pray that 2024 is a great year for you, but I know for some of us, storms are coming. And some of you can see it. Some of you have no idea what's about to hit you. Jesus gives you a little heads up. Don't doubt in the dark what you have seen in the light. I'm still here. Did you notice in verse 19, two words that are capitalized, I am. 
That's not by mistake. Jesus was reminding the disciples of Moses standing before the burning bush. Moses is coming up with all the excuses of why he doesn't want to go back to Egypt because he left in a storm 40 years before. And he knew if he went back, God was calling him into another storm. And he said to God, well, who shall I, who shall I say is sending me? And God says, tell them I am has sent you. And in the upper room, Jesus says to his disciples, I am. I am enough. I am sufficient. I am all powerful. You are going to go through storms. Don't doubt in the dark what you've seen in the light. You will get through the storm if you stop trying to over control and lean hard into me. Do the opposite of what we typically do. Okay, I've given you three opposite things that are not normal, right? Don't isolate, insulate, right? Lean into Jesus hard. Don't stew, serve. I'm just wondering, because I've given you three, but there's tons more. Is there something that you have to do the opposite of what feels normal for you today. For example, forgiving somebody who has hurt you very deeply or your family. It's normal to hold a grudge. It's normal to play that fantasy in your mind of that person getting theirs. It's called revenge fantasies. Here's another one, receiving forgiveness. You know the hardest person to forgive is you. You've done things, you've said things, you've sinned against God, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23 says. And so the hardest thing for some people to do is to actually let go and say, I receive forgiveness and I embrace cleansing and I'm going to walk clean before God. That's a really hard thing for some people to do because they just have a hard time letting go and knowing that they've been forgiven for something that they've done years and years and years ago. So I just want to close with this question. What do you need to do the opposite of what you would normally do, but you know that the Holy Spirit's in it? Would you stand, please? The worship team is going to come. We're going to close out the service. I would like to just give an invitation to come to the altar today. You know, you know how I feel about the altar. I think that the altar is a safe place. I think it's a place that we ought to run to, not run away from. I think the normal, natural thing to do is to say, I don't want to go to the altar. You know, there's a lot of human things. I don't want to go to the altar. I don't want people to see me. You know, what if I start crying at the altar? You know, and there's all kinds of things that rise up inside of us. Maybe for some of you, the Holy Spirit's tapped you on the shoulder and said, hey, do the opposite of this. And you just want to spend some time at the altar praying about it. That could be your first step of faith. You, you could be like 
I think I'm going to get into this. I'm going to do the opposite of whatever I feel is normal and right. And maybe this is your first step to just come to an altar to say, yeah, I'm going to do the opposite of what I feel. Remember what Jesus said? When we do the opposite, God will bless us. Holy Spirit, would you move among us today? Lord, I pray specifically for people who are in a storm. Would you give them a word today and the faith and the courage to lean into you? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.